we're talking about another astonishing episode of Another Way Boys. We are conspired here to dis today to discuss uh, the paranoid style in American cinema. Um, at least two examples of it. Uh, Suddenly from 1954 and the Parallax View from it. Wasn't that 1974? Yeah, how much, how much has changed in 20 years? Exactly. Um, one famously stars uh, Frank Sinatra going, he's, uh, I would say, Joker-pilled. Joker-fied Frank Sinatra as an unhinged madman. Uh, and he is foiled by uh, Sterling Hayden and more. We'll get to that later. And then uh, Parallax View, of course, stars uh, pretty boy uh, Warren Beatty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... Warren Beatty's legacy is as, as a Lothario in Pretty Boy, but, you know, sometimes you get the impression like he single-handedly carried uh, new Hollywood on his back. Yeah, yeah. Like he's one of those examples of the star who is actually very involved in the production process. Like, he was one of the produce. I remember yeah. reading Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and he was one of the producers of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and right. He, and he was, like, basically on his knees begging Jack Warner for money to produce the movie, and finally Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, obviously, and he was a grizzled old motherfucker from, like, the 30s, way, way back, and he was like, all right, fine, get the fuck off my carpet, I'll pay for your movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this, that book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, is is pretty much about Warren Beatty and like his, you know, and and starts with him uh, essentially developing Bonnie and Clyde. You yeah, know? he 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 was responsible kind of for the development of that, and uh, and and you you know get the feeling like, you know, he was he was a man behind the scenes for a lot of what took place in the seventies Hollywood. I I never was that. I mean. First off, I should say I haven't read that book. I uh, I don't know. You can tell me if I if I need to read it. Um, but I, I don't know. I I was never that big a, a Bonnie and Clyde fan. I guess um, I appreciated Beatty to some extent, but I I don't know. I I didn't dislike. I didn't have that many strong feelings about him. Um, I say that just because you emphatically state that he carried. New Hollywood, and I'm, I'm not saying he didn't, but it's interesting because, I mean, I don't know, I, I only watched The Parallax View recently, and you watch him in this movie, and he's everything that you're describing, and he's a movie star of the First Order, and he's clearly involved in the process in a real way, and someone who is deeply committed to his craft, and who is convincing, uh, you know, and, and, and he's really impressive. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> and, he, and, and I guess I've underestimated Beatty. Um, yeah, or, I, I think he's, I think uh, he's easy, to under, about it, but, easy to underestimate. But, yeah. Just based yeah. on, just based on the reputation that is proliferated today. I mean, and even today, he's not even talked about that much. But I mean, when we were growing up, you know, and, and it's like Bullworth. Yeah, like, yeah, Bullworth. Well, he made his first movie in like 
15 years that and that like came out like five years ago and that was about howard hughes and he had been wanting that was like his like love child that was the thing that he wanted to make for decades and he made it and it just totally flopped and then of course he had his whole thing um with faye dunaway of course with the bonnie to his clyde um at like the oscars about like the best picture and stuff and so i think nowadays we have this image of him as just this sort of doddering old man this sort of elder statesman of hollywood but back in the day yeah he really was this sort of maverick kind of figure right and i i mean i i guess like uh i my understanding that's why that's why all actors should die young if you're <laughs> no. an actor you should just find a way to off yourself early so you <laughs> get to that doddering old man stage oh man yeah that's, well, and my, the guy's, that's my career advice yeah the, the guys the guys uh, yeah his body count is like a, the stuff of legend and um they've even got like a massive list just on his wikipedia page of like famous hollywood starlets oh, yeah. that he was linked to reportedly yeah, he, dated warren baby oh, he's I, like he's like the white wilt chamberlain yeah exactly dude yeah no there's there's no doubt that Beatty's got bodies and that he was fucking fucking slang and uh, <laughs> in, yeah. in hollywood and uh uh was lusted after by many but like i guess i always thought of him as kind of a sackless lib to some extent like sure, as a, yeah. like and that i kind of have I don't know. It, that's kind of cloaked a lot of his work. Just bit of a he's a bit of a male version of Jane Fonda kind of thing. But I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, or, I, yeah, exactly. That that was just kind of like and um. But I, mean, I had I had a, a dad who who deeply hated Jane Fonda for her <laughs> politics, and I, I think felt similarly to Beatty. Hanoi like, Beatty. Yeah, but <laughs> but you watch Beatty in this movie. He's so good. He oh, does yeah, a number of different things, and he plays a kind of like a uh, hipster hippie. But yeah, he's kind of a, he doesn't have like this laconic cool energy. Like he's not like a Paul Newman or or not really Paul Newman because, but like he he's not like a Steve McQueen or like in the modern way like a Chris Pratt like very like cool laid back. He has a kind of weird like neurotic energy which is like lends itself to like the sort of paranoid atmosphere yeah and of course yeah. as they say just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you well he's well, just he's just he's just well he's just feels feel so well-rounded and yeah and like in the sense that i don't know like you see him in this in this movie and when he's being sized up by the parallax corp and everything as a as a potential uh, uh as as a potential um you know, agent. Uh, yeah. He's he's like he's like a muscular, capable guy in a fight. He can hold his own. You know, he gets yeah. like the fucking. Anyway, we can get into all well, that. Well, I I was yeah. thinking, can we? I mean, I I would love to get into it. I mean, do you guys want to work backwards on this but, one? But but let's no. Let's, yeah, let's uh let's uh. I mean, this has been our inaugural episode of Baby Boys, I guess. Yeah. Um. Let's yeah. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I, I would really <laughs> like to start start from the beginning. Uh, uh, with suddenly because. And let's have because Brendan was the one who brought it this to our table. So Brendan, you want to 
get us off the, on the right foot with suddenly. I, I have kind of an idea of how you discovered suddenly, but can you explain how you discovered suddenly? Like, why it's important to you? Why you're like, I, I, we, I need these guys to see this movie. Like, we need to talk about this film. Because, yes. like your feelings about that, I, I felt the same way about the parallax view. But, but with suddenly, what, what was it? What was it? Well, it was a real surprise for me when I saw it. Uh, when I was probably like 12. Well, why um, did you watch this when you were like 12? Well, I mean, it was on Turner Classics. Okay. On it, but it was on it. It, it was a surprising, like like I came to it kind of. I, I was really into Frank Sinatra when I was 12 years old, and in fact, I had a sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Kinsey, who was my arch nemesis. Uh, I've never had, you know, teachers. As you guys could probably imagine, teachers were usually fairly fond of me. Uh, you know, I was a good kid, but uh, but this teacher, for some reason, she she absolutely despised me. And um, for some reason, and I was obsessed when I was 12 because because Frank Sinatra died like right when I was like in the sixth grade, I think. And that's how I became interested in, you know, just like it was like he died. And I was like, well, what's the big deal with this man dying? And I listened to his mute. And then I, you know, my dad had a couple CDs and I listened to his music. And I thought it was great, like, because I thought that it was, it was just some, it took me to another world that was completely separate from everything that I knew. You know, it was like this completely different atmosphere of, of romance and cool and, you know, not to be cringe, but masculinity, I guess. That, that was completely foreign to me when I was 12. Okay, so anyway, I see that, um, but I'm also in, but at that time, I'm also into movies like, you know, Reservoir Dogs and, and getting into Quentin Tarantino and, and crime movies more broadly. And I see that on Turner Classic Movies on like a Friday or Saturday night, they were doing a Sterling Hayden triple play. And they, they had The Asphalt Jungle, The Killing, and Suddenly. And Suddenly had Frank Sinatra. So I was like, okay, I'm going to tape all three of these movies. And, did, and you, I, did you know Hayden? I'd never heard of him before in my life. Oh, yeah, you haven't. Okay, I did okay. not know anything about Sterling Hayden. And I thought, oh, this guy's great. Like, I was like, wow, this guy is like an action star. You know, that was kind of my, you know, my understanding of, of cinema was like through, you know, there, there might be like an action hero or something like that. I thought this guy is like the action star of his day, Sterling Hayden. And yeah. these movies are really modern seeming to me mm -hmm. like like i wasn't thinking oh these are like old these are like old classic hollywood movies i was thinking these are kin particularly asphalt jungle and the killing i was like these are kin with a movie like you know like a, a movie like reservoir dogs like so you, you you obviously recognize the like you'd yes. seen reservoir dogs and you and you exactly. understood upon watching the killing that like how, how important a film must have been exactly because the, the idea was that this, these are these are movies that are crime gone bad. But with sure. Suddenly, I was really surprised because the performance that Frank Sinatra gives as a psychopathic, crazed killer was completely against the cooler and sometimes even silly roles that he that I had been more familiar with him in, like in, uh, you know, movies like, you know, the, the Rat Pack movies like like Ocean's Eleven and Robin and the Seven Hoods, but also the musicals, 
you know, like the musicals that he did, uh, like, I don't know, I'm thinking of like, there was like one with Doris Day called like Young at Heart or something like that. And, uh, and so I was just completely surprised by it. But I also really, really, in, I, I don't know, I was just really impressed with it. And I think it was my, th this was my first ever glimpse into the world of, of hard-boiled cinema, noir, noir, and whatever you can call, whatever suddenly is, which I, it's not even, it's not even really a noir. The and home the fact, invasion movie. Yes, it's a home invasion movie from 1954. And I think that the most, the most astounding thing about it is, is that, and, and, and I think that you could, you know, film noir is sometimes said like, this is the temp, this is, this is a diagnosis of an America uh, that, that is finally, of a ho Hollywood is finally coming to understand that maybe not everything is all right with the world, you know, or not everything is, is, is good at home. But, but the thing is, is that the, the world that noir itself takes place in is almost kind of outside of the real world, but mm -hmm. suddenly represents an interruption of the, of the, of the, the peaceful, tranquil, and fifties um, uh, where America is on the rise. And the contrast is done really well in the movie um, you know, we and and Blower had observed this before that you know you it starts out with kind of this like leave it to Beaver esque. You use the phrase yeah. "gee whiz" atmosphere. Yeah, it That's, like starts out as like leave it to Beaver, or like uh, even though it precedes Andy Griffith show by a few years, it like a very Andy Griffith show. Gee oh yeah, Willikers officer, like very like that kind of naive vibe. And then it gets, well, it suddenly takes a turn into, like, just this sweaty, paranoid, like, horror show. Yes. You get this introduction to the town where, um, you know, the, the film is about a town called Suddenly. And we get an explanation for the town within the first few minutes of the movie. And, uh, and then, yes, we go into the Leave It to Beaverland atmosphere, and we're with Sterling Hayden, who, you know, Brandon, I watched this movie because you told me to watch it, of course, and I love Sterling Hayden. I was really excited to see it. And, you know, he's, for one, as, as Elroy boys, we understand that Sterling Hayden is, is for one, he is the, the real Bud White, right? Yes. He is, you know, a, a, a real genuine heavy and just one of the best movie stars of all time and just this incredibly impressive figure. And the movies that, you know, what well, we've talked about Crime Wave, uh, in which he uh, quite literally roams around scaring the shit out of people and is this incredibly imposing figure. And... Uh, we meet him in this small town and suddenly, and he is the, uh, he is a cop. And I mean, I don't know. It, it was kind of amusing to me because it looked like his like pol police suit was like a little bit too small. <laughs> yes. And like, uh, and like, so he's, he's also trying to um, win his way into this woman's heart who has a son. Yeah, he's macking on this widowed single mom. This widowed... <laughs> yeah, and she's frankly busted. And, like, 
<laughs> and like, so I don't know what his intentions are. That kid is a ticking time bomb. <laughs> and, yeah, he, and he has dial. He's like, come on, a kid like him needs a man, not just a mother. Like he has a very like that kind of way of talking. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's Sterling. It, it, it's just, it was just funny to see him in this. In this, it feels very much like he is. He's on the loose in the crime wave and the killing and in many of his other performances in 1900. Um, Here he feels very much kind of like contained and uh, uh, he's kind of an archetype and he's wonderful, um, but it's, it's interesting to see him in this kind of like fighting against... Well, it's funny because I feel like Comparing his performance in this and his other movies, um, including up to, like, The Godfather and stuff like that, is you get the realization that that kind of, like, gee whiz style of acting was, like, maybe this is an obvious point, but, like, was, like, a heightened thing that they deliberately did back then. Like, I think a lot of people, including myself, just sort of thought, like, that's how people acted in movies back then, but know that that was like a deliberate conscious choice on the part of the filmmakers and the actors to convey a certain, I don't know, sensibility that the audiences would vibe with. That it, that's not, it's not just how people, you know, right. talked back then. But do you think that like, like, Hayden in this compared to in his other roles I don't know even in yeah in, in other things in, in later roles in Doctor Strange Love um, I don't know he feels very like uh, I don't know I don't know what I'm trying to say but um, well, he, what we'll, he's, we'll get into it but what but he's he, doing he, he's playing second to, yeah. to Sinatra in a, in a way and, sure I mean because he's a little bit more I mean he is he is a little bit more controlled in this role I, it doesn't, but it's not, it's not inappropriate or anything like that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it works. And the movie does a good job of creating an atmosphere of, of tranquility because the whole idea is that, okay, it, it takes place in this town called Suddenly, right? And, and, you know, we get that introduction where, you know, some guy pulls up his car and he's like, hey, where's Three Rivers? And, and the cop, you know, another cop, not Sterling Hayden, is like, oh, uh, well, you're in Suddenly. And the guy's like, Suddenly what? And he's like, oh, that's the name of our town, you know, but, uh, you know, they should change the name to Gradually because, uh, you know, nothing really, nothing actually happens here at all. And so you get that feeling like nothing, nothing much of import is going to happen in this town. Everybody's kind of used to just the the pattern. And, you know, Sterling Hayden, his his whole you know, his aspiration, uh, you know, other than just maintaining the status quo as the sheriff is to, you know, make himself a part of this widow's life and and maybe impose a little bit of, uh, you know, of, of a fatherly example on the life of this kid, Pidge, who's extremely sheltered, like almost, you know, almost pathologically sheltered by his mother because she's a widow she's widowed as a result of world war ii because her husband was killed and so her whole her her entire modus operandi is to keep out to keep out of her son's life 
and maybe out of her own, the reality of violence in the world. Yes. And so And so there's this repression that's taking place. And uh, to use a psychoanalytic term, Frank Sinatra, the assassin, is the return of the repressed. That, that, that this family that's specifically repressing all uh, thoughts and uh, the, the possibility of violence uh, is visited by the angel of death. Mm-hmm. In, in the form of Frank Sinatra. Well, 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 Frank Sinatra is also like we have these two, we have these two examples of men in in Sterling Hayden, whose character's name is what is his character's name in in Suddenly? I don't remember. Um, it's uh, uh, why am I forget Todd? But yeah, but, yeah, Todd Shaw. But, but Todd is uh, you've got Todd, and you've got um, Sinatra's killer. And uh, like John Barron, that's right. a great villain, and John Barron, and, and he and, and we get to learn various things about his background, and and we kind of then really get a sense of who he is towards the end, um, and aspects of the, his past that he may be, uh, you know, purposefully obfuscating and so on. But he's been in the military. Um, he's also acting with no real political motive and he's kind of a, a mercenary figure right well, but he's this violent man who has this unresolved relationship to violence and i feel like the kid is either going to grow up to be like the sinatra assassin or he's going to grow up to be like uh uh todd shaw and and this and it's about understanding you know right and wrong through violence. Yeah. Well, and like, while Frank Sinatra is the return of the press and this angel of death, the true intrusion into this sleepy town is the impending looming arrival of the president and his uh, special train. And I feel like that is more of the intrusion into the lives of these characters than even the presence of the John Barron figure and his gang of would-be assassins because it's the presence of the president is sort of the realization that these characters can't escape history. They can't escape, you know, capital E events. And it's events that got the woman's husband and uh, Pidge's dad killed during World War II. And so, and that John Barron and his people, they're sort of like the dark shadow of the looming specter of the president because, yeah, without the president going there, these, you know, madmen wouldn't be there either. Laura, you mean like like in the sense that, like, I do feel like uh, to expand upon the uh, leave it to beaver you know uh, aspect of it and there's this um, there's this incredibly um, dark interruption right by by like is 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 it kind of like okay so so the this, sorry but the the arrival of the president which brings with it a the, the kind of problems that uh, 
you know, yeah. the president showing up in your town and that suddenly is this town where nothing happens and it's incredibly peaceful. And uh, the arrival of the president means the arrival of, you know, uh, real, a real threat as well. Yeah. You know. Well, because it's the figure of the president that gets people into these messes in the first place and gets, you know, them people caught up in events in history. And I'm kind of cribbing what I was saying during our... Uh, uh, epic uh, Black Nowhere episode where basically Dudley Smith is kind of the specter of history that he is involved in all of these various schemes involving real world uh, shenanigans and his presence into the lives of our main characters sort of brings with them the these uh, implications of real world events. So by the same mm -hmm. token, the arrival of the president sort of wakes wakes the people of suddenly up to the reality that they're not just in some Leave It to Beaver episode; that they are actually people acting in the world. And you know, if the president is a real figure that exists in the world and can act on the world as, you know, he can um, and does, then, you know, Pidge, even if there wasn't a John Barron figure, this Pidge kid could grow up, you know, years later and, I don't know, like, either go to the Vietnam War and die, you know, during the, you know, uh, Tet Offensive or, like, grow his hair out and be a hippie. But it's the, it's the figure of the president that symbolizes that turning point. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that yeah. that, that that absolutely makes sense. And 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 Pidge, the kid, is is re repeatedly says, "I'm going to be a this, and I'm going to be a that. I'm going to be a soldier, and yeah. I'm going to be a cop." You know, and uh, it, it it opens the, the whole the whole opening bit involves um, Pidge, the kid wanting a cat pistol. Yeah. And, uh... And it's really, and it's like, well, what would you do with it? Hold up a police station? <laughs> and And Todd, Sterling Hayden, who's trying to be the father figure, steps in and is like, yeah, sure, I'll get you this cap gun. He's like, oh, my mom won't let me, you know. Mm -hmm. And the mom is, is repressing all of his, his, uh, you know, boyish desires to kind of live dangerously and uh grow up to be a soldier and um he's curious about his father and he's proud of his dad and anyway and he's well, got a secret service you know grandfather but anyway there's a lot going on there it, well it's 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 yeah there is a lot going on because because uh you know there it there's a something that they're like saying about about like a a single mother left to her own devices raising a son as opposed to if there was a father figure involved in his life. Uh, it's worth noting that what Sterling Hayden says when, um, when the kid wants to buy the, the cat pistol is he says, what are you going to do? Stick up a filling station. Which yeah. is exactly what happens as in the exciting wave. event in crime wave. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but, but th there is, there is something to what you're saying, Blauer. I I thought of it more as as kind of an existential, uh, you know, a more personal existential idea of like suddenly 
uh, you know, bad things can happen to you as a person, you know, that, that, Mm -hmm. that no matter what the status quo is in your life, everything can without, without warning, everything can change and, and death can enter. But you're right in that, in that World War II looms heavily over this movie because Frank Sinatra is a vet, you know, John Barron, Frank Sinatra is a veteran, as is Sterling Hayden, as is, and, and of course, the, the father of Pidge, who's no longer with us, was killed in that war. Mm-hmm. And I think that World War II, and then, you know, and then everything else that happens after it in the 50s, is that the world that the world and events and history are now intruding on an of what was a previously isolated America and yeah. that and that the United States and that a place like suddenly a small town like suddenly or really any place in the United States uh, other than maybe a, a New York or a San Francisco or something like that. And even then, not so much that that they were going about their business without, you know, out kind of outside of history and outside of events, notwithstanding, of course, the things that happen within our country. But you just kind of get the feeling that now the America, even in places as far flung as suddenly California, which, you know, is not real, that they can't keep the world out and that yeah. and that it that this is this represents that intrusion that's taking place that kind of began with with our involvement in world war ii right yeah and 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 not to keep saying intrusion and this is quite literally a home invasion movie you know, <laughs> yes. not to be too on the point but it is probably one of the within the first 10 home invasion movies ever made probably and so it's it is all about you know uh uh this kind of um well yeah because just happening just thinking about like people would yeah it has to be one of the earliest ones is because like you have this sort of like i don't i think the term is like cognitive cascade or something like that where it's sort of like it explains why people used to just like you know, leave their car doors unlocked because they had no conception of someone breaking into their car or something like that. And so the idea that, like, well, why would someone intrude into my home? That doesn't make any sense. Don't they have their own home? Yeah. And so then this idea that, like, no, that there are wicked people out there. Yeah, anyway, that's just a well, well, and, and for, for a Pidge who wants to be like his deceased father and wants to be like Sterling Hayden's Todd character, um, you know, he wants to be a hero of these conflicts. He's He knows only these, these, these are positive uh, role models in his life and uh, people who he wants to be like and, and their forces for good and, and morality and... Um, and they, you know, demand that he be, I don't know, a a, a good soul, but then the invading factor is what you don't see, which is this broken man, um, this man who was in the war, but was broken by it to some extent, and, you know, he he represents a different kind of a veteran than uh, Pidge has seen before. Pidge hasn't been introduced um, to this kind of reaction 
to the war that is nefarious and that wants to like literally destroy the country and and you know suddenly he's faced with a reality of you know he's he's dealing in the opening moments of the the question of you know why he should have a gun in the first place and he's listening to uh todd explain you know how uh, explain to Pidge's mom how she can't keep him wrapped up in cellophane and that, you know, he's going to need to to wake up and uh, he, he's going to need to understand that it's it's a it's a violent world. And so that's that's what happens is, is violence, you know, um, comes tearing into the household in the form of uh, Frank Sinatra, who's a sinewy little um weird. a five seven king <laughs> yeah he's he's like he does this he, but he but compared to sterling hayden who uh is this gallant figure uh i don't know like frank sinatra looks like this feral like like uh wild-eyed oh, yeah. uh like he looks it's it's interesting because like i i, I feel like sinatra is coming into this role in this movie wanting to play a complicated anti-hero, um, wanting to have a kind of like Robert Mitchum-like role to sink his teeth into, wanting to be able to to play these these kind of anti-hero figures that were on the rise. And, you know, I mean, this is something people did, obviously. Um, and uh yeah no he 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 wants more depth well and, and it's a surprisingly subversive performance and characterization for a movie made in 1954 like less than a decade out from the end of world war 2 which is like you know outside of any you know sort of edgy political prognostications is like considered like the good war, war between good and evil, and like especially during that period, it's like that was the war that sort of turned us into this like enormous, you know, prosperous superpower. That was the war that proved ourselves to be that shining city on the hill. And so the idea that a veteran of that war would be twisted and monstrous is a very subversive and like I don't know countercultural kind of thing, um, and, and 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 I always, you know, I, I forgive me if I'm off, but I always viewed Sinatra as kind of a counter to the counterculture, and and feel like you know, the, well, yeah, because he was sort of always the those kids will be in their sort of long hair, and I'll be doing my uh, well, he, yeah, he, like like Sinatra, and, but, but Sin- the, yeah, Sinatra was even already in contrast. To characters like Elvis when he came yeah. I mean he was I mean he's like a generation he's like two generations before the counterculture in many ways yeah but it's 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 interesting though like because to watch him next to Sterling Hayden again because Sterling Hayden is this big guy this he's actually tall imposing um believable in an action scene uh, guy, um, and, uh, I mean, I think he was a, and, 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 you know, he just, he makes, he makes Sinatra's character, he doesn't make Sinatra look cool or, uh, 
Uh, I don't think, you know, uh, Sinatra is intending to play that cool of an anti-hero, actually. Um, but he really... Well, I don't really... And I think what he's he daring makes, about it is yeah. I don't think he's trying to be an anti-hero at all. I think he is just a straightforward villain. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like he's you're right. not a... He's not like the guy who's like, I've had a change of heart, I'll be good. Or like, you know, he's... Tries he does good despite insisting he's being bad. He's just a straightforward psychopathic villain, and you aren't really. You would think that like a star of Sinatra's stature and like sort of like self consciousness about his stardom would want to have like I want to have like some scene where like I'm depicted sympathetically, and like maybe the most sympathetic moment is like when he's like basically crumpled on the floor after the assassination is foiled and he's just like no 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 like that's him at his most sympathetic but it's only because he is so pathetic yeah, well, he's, he's mewling and 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 yeah like he ends up on on his knees at the end of it but yeah no, I, don't, I don't think he's ever sympathetic but I guess the, the, my my uh calling him an anti-hero or 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 wanting to call him that, I guess that isn't accurate, is is probably because he takes top billing in this movie. Yeah. You know, and so I, you, you got to think, like, okay, is this... But you're right. Like, um, in no way does he really represent any kind of hero yeah. for this world, you know? Well, so this, contextually speaking, this is a, a very a highly empowered Frank Sinatra, the actor. Because because Frank Sinatra in the 40s was a he was in like he was, appeared in musicals with Gene Kelly. That was like what he was known for. And then in 1953, he takes the role of a lifetime as uh, an Italian-American soldier, World War II soldier uh, named Maggio in From Here to Eternity. And that and there's some mythology surrounding that role that basically, you know, Sinatra was like, you know, he was like the, he was kind of at the end of his rope and he took that role and it was supposed to be like his comeback. And they they kind of dramatized that a little bit in The Godfather yeah. with the uh, with like, what is it, Al Martino that plays that that singer who goes to the Godfather begging him to yes. get that Hollywood role. Well, that's, that's supposed to be Sinatra begging for the, from here to eternity role. And then he wow. gets that and wins the best supporting actor Academy award for that role. So that was 53. And this is immediately following that in 54. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a string of roles that Sinatra had that were not those, you know, um, like the, the, you know, the musical, silly roles but really serious dark roles and in 55 he's plays a like this heroin or morphine addicted um blackjack dealer in this movie the i think it's auto preminger movie or yeah. something like that the man, man with, with the, the golden, golden arm. arm and so oh, yeah. so this is sinatra who's finally kind of found that he that that he can you know make uh, do, do something different as an actor this was like this was like the original reconnaissance exactly well, exactly or like or like adam sandler and punch drunk love <laughs> yeah. or no but 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 uh uh there's this other movie that i i figure we'll talk about in october nightmare alley 
with Tyrone Power, and Tyrone Power was a matinee idol, and that was him, um, you know, turning his career around to be taken seriously, playing this uh, villain, you know, um, uh, Oliver Bateman made reference to it in our oh, uh, the yeah. city. Oh yeah, sure. Um, but it's uh, a great little noir, and you know, it's about the geek in uh, a carnival, and it's about this guy. Anyway, but but he's basically a straight-up villain. It's it's not as nefarious as this, but basically it was Tyrone Power, the matinee idol, wanted to transform his career and be taken seriously, and so he took this role in uh, yeah in in Nightmare Alley, and and it's it's a, a similar similar moment here. Like, yeah. yeah, the. But, but but he does it. He does a great job, and 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 Sterling Hayden does a great job because what Sterling Hayden does is in, he does he just uses his size, you know, and and his voice to convey what he needs to convey. In contrast to Sinatra, who's kind of slinking around, uh, yeah. you know, kind of cat like. I would even say, yeah, you know, in in the space. So you've got so that's in contrast to kind of the 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 the, the sturdy like the like that's what Sterling Hayden is in this movie. He's sturdy. And he's that he's a big presence, but he stays still while Sinatra's kind of ruling the roost. And I mean, he's and 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 this is an observation that I made about the movie um, this time around was that I was I was getting a little bit freaked out when I was watching it because I was like, oh, this the premise of this movie is absolutely ridiculous. He he's got Frank Sinatra busts into this house to kill the president and then take off, but he's leaving all of these people. Basically, these this entire family, he's leaving them alive while he does it, only to probably kill them when he leaves. So why doesn't he just kill them now? You know, yeah. like it makes no yeah. sense for him no. to leave no. these people alive and, and basically as an obstacle to his purpose. But but it, but as the movie goes on, it actually makes a lot more sense because he's he's a he's he wants an audience. This guy yeah. wants an audience for his per for his nefarious purposes. Yeah, when he's when uh, when he realizes that they've been ID'd, he he says something about that, right? He was like, "Oh, see, I'll, we'll all get we'll get the credit too," you know. <laughs> um, and and I feel like what what ultimately happens though is is basically uh, he's waxing. He's talking about his past life as a soldier and how many men he killed and you know going on and on about uh these these combat stories and um basically hayden like calls him out um yeah. and well because he didn't make it for, for what he is yeah and 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 uh you know really it kind of exposes him and sinatra is kind of brilliant there because watching him kind of like mentally fall apart um he's, he's really good you know? yeah and and uh, and it's it's so i think it's there's something unique about this idea that there would be men who were in the war who would enjoy killing because certainly that's true right i mean they're oh, yeah i mean i mean that's certainly that's true but i just think that they don't they don't often address that in in war movies or in in movies from this era where there are lots of there, where there are obviously lots of veterans 
you know, in society <laughs> that some of the people that would have gone over there, you know, would have had criminal tendencies or violent tendencies and would have taken to some of the aspects of war, uh, of the more violent aspects of war. Well, and, a war... Uh, all right. Go ahead. No, go uh, ahead. Well, a war is a great way to get a large, especially when you had conscription like back then, a great way to get a huge swath of the population, train them how to kill and be desensitized to killing, and then basically let them back into gen pop and just be more or less like, all right, well, have fun with your life. And you can have a sim, and there, obviously there's a sympathetic portrayal of them as sort of like, you know, alienated and isolated from mainstream society yeah. and yeah, sort of in the taxi driver mode and they go to violence because that's all they know how to do. But then you can also have the more nefarious perspective where it's like, well, if a country is populated with like, you know, like every fifth person is like a former military trained killer, then essentially that you have a, you know, nation on the edge and basically a military state. And that is where you start getting into like freakier things like blowback and like the Phoenix program and during Vietnam, potentially like training people who became like serial killers in the United States in the 70s and 80s. So it's very bold, and what does uh, Sinatra keep repeating in, in the movie is he keeps talking about being trying to kill, right? Yeah. Like, and, and he keeps talking about, um, you know, how much he, he enjoyed killing. And um, Frank Pearson, the screenwriter uh, who was a World War II vet, um, he wrote Cool Hand Luke and Dog Day Afternoon, and he... Uh, Anyway, he uh, was was quoted about um, talking about World War II, about how no one really is honest about how exciting it was, mm. about how exciting, and and, and he was in in combat, and and so I think that there is this like acknowledgement that that you could get you that people are getting their thrills of, like killing, you know, that some people enjoy killing, that some people have this you know, other relationship to violence, this completely abnormal relationship to violence. Um, and, and, you know, like when Sterling Hayding says, I, I, I knew guys like you, you know? Yeah. Um, but he's also kind of like revealing that, that he's sort of a coward and that he probably is, 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 you know, making stories up about his military history and, and, um, trying to make himself out to be more of a killer than he actually really was, you know, or I, I, I've got sort of that sense, or maybe, you know, or he, other, either that, or he was simply a guy who really enjoyed killing. And then specifically, I think he says something to him about that he probably got dishonorably discharged for killing prisoners of war for fun. Right? Did yes, yes, yeah. yeah he, so, so, yeah, I that's I don't know. I, I, I think that's really, really interesting, and in a in a weird way, as unsympathetic as uh, Sinatra's character is, it adds a depth to the narrative of around World War Two and around mm -hmm. this world, and it adds a certain amount of sympathy for characters like that. 
um, it, to some extent, you know, like, uh, regardless of how conscious it is, not that he's not saying he's righteous in any type of way, but there is a, there is something to the acknowledgement of of this person's existence, I guess, um, and that they have something to be angry about, you know. Um, well, and another example is, you know, just taking the, uh, you know, the episode that we just released as of this recording is uh, Humphrey Bogart as Dixon Steele in uh, in a Lonely Place. Like he that he doesn't become a assassin or whatever, like a hired violent man, but like he is a screenwriter and he has extremely violent tendencies and he emerged from the morass of World War II as a hero and I wouldn't be surprised if like within the context of that character that World War II was a great sort of breeding ground and proving ground for just how violent and psychopathic he could be. Yeah. So, well, and, and, and the thing is, is that he, that, that everybody else thinks that Dixon Steele is crazy, except for Brub, who, who's, who's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he knew him from that context. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, uh, suddenly remind me of actually, um, there's a movie that, that we'll have to talk about at some point, but is, uh, you know, the 1977 Grindhouse favorite, uh, Rolling Thunder, the William Devane, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, movie that was, uh, written by Paul Schrader. Have, have, have you guys seen it? I've never seen it. No, never seen it. Okay. All right. Well, you, you have to watch it. Um, we've got to do an episode with, with Dan about it. Maybe with something else, maybe like electric light and blue or something, but it's, it's basically, okay. So, um, it is partially a home invasion film. And, um, it's premise. I'll tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, it is about, you know, these, uh, major Charles rain is this, uh, uh, vet who's, uh, coming home to San Antonio, um, with, uh, after spending like nearly a decade as a POW in a Hanoi, you know, prison camp. And he comes home and uh, to find his wife sleeping with the town sheriff who is also like playing father, a playing father figure to his son. And uh, within, you know, the first 48 hours of him getting back home, his wife is basically asking for a divorce and is like, I'm with you know, this guy now. And, um, this guy's just spent, you know, a decade being tortured, um, uh, by the Vietnamese. And, uh, anyway, but this setup, and then he, when he gets back to this, to San Antonio, there's a parade for him and he's given, you know, uh, uh, money that's been saved up as, as a charity for him, you know, not very much. And these thugs show up to his house and he won't tell them where the gold is. And so they take his hand and they shove it um, into the uh, garbage disposal machine. Oh, Jesus. You know? and, and so it's about him taking vengeance on these guys. Of course, he gets a hook for a hand. It's, it's an amazing movie. Damn, um, it sounds but, awesome. Uh, it's the, 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 the kind of dynamic 
the things that reminded me of is that the cop character the who in, in, well, yeah, in Rolling Thunder it sounds like is like suddenly is he's very similar to the Sterling uh, Hayden character in the way that he and there's no like the there's no part of the the wife is there's no part of the wife is like you know uh, it's like if suddenly had Frank Sinatra say no pig I am your father <laughs> no but it is like it is like but it is this is the, like he comes back and is like uh, uh, you know his 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 life is completely uh, fucked over and um, you know he's dealt this but but he he embodies this this uh you know he's a soldier coming home who to people who have forgotten he's existed and who thought that he's died he's totally traumatized you know yeah and i i and so his arrival back home is and all of the baggage that he's bringing is almost as much of in invasion as then the invasion, you know, it's, it's, it's in, in his life is totally warped. So that, anyway, that kind of reminded me of, like, I, I just got this sense watching suddenly that, that while it isn't a particularly well-recognized movie, it was a movie that a lot of people saw and, yeah, I, for sure. and I totally could have seen Paul Schrader having, uh, watched suddenly and, you know, um, you know, cause there is, there is some kind of, uh, through line between that character and then of course Travis Bickle you know yeah, absolutely. Schrader creation and uh and you know uh Major Charles Rain passes through that as well yeah uh, but uh it's 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 interesting because it it Rolling Thunders it, I feel like tries to speak a little bit um it tries to embolden the this the the tormented veteran perspective in a way, um, and bring some nobility to it in a way that, well, you know, is sort of warped and perverted and suddenly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that that's, that's the most, you know, you Sam, you use the term bold. I, I think that it was a, it's a really bold thing to address in this movie, in this time period is that idea that, you know, that, that, you know, that the war, the, the, not all the men who are in the war are, are like Sterling Hayden or are like uh, other, you know, more honorable veteran characters that we see presented in cinema or, you know, or your own dad or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, the, now that you're talking about it, I, I'm, I, I'm thinking that the blueprint for this movie was another movie that I watched recently. And I hope that the timeline is correct because I think that it would have been before, I think it was in 1950, this came out. Well, I think, I think I know what you're going to say. Is Key Largo? Yes, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, you're because right. Humphrey, Bogart, Humphrey Bogart is a veteran who goes to a hotel in the Florida Keys to visit the widow of a guy who he fought with in World War II. And while he's there at, at that hotel that's owned by her, her and her father-in-law, who is an old man like Pop Benson is an old man father-in-law in this movie. In Key Largo, it's Lionel Barrymore, who's wheelchair bound. They are stuck 
in this hotel during a hurricane with crazed mobster Edward G. Robinson. And Edward G. Robinson plays a, uh, you know, he holds court and, and performs and gesticulates and generally makes mayhem among the people who are trapped in there with him a lot like Frank Sinatra does in Suddenly. And Humphrey Bogart, in contrast, is very stoic and, and, and brave and is, is standing up to him. And so I feel like that Key Largo, the script for that, you know, they kind of thought, well, we can kind of transmute the Key Largo premise to uh, to kind of a suburban California or whatever. So Key Largo is what nineteen forty eight. Okay, forty eight. And um, so six years yeah. prior. And uh, prior to Key Largo, there there's a W. D. Griffith movie that's about yeah. a home invasion called The Lonely Villa. Uh huh. Um, and then there's a Charles Vider noir called Blind Alley. Oh, um, I've heard of it. And uh, and uh, and then you have Houston's Key Largo, and then years later you have this. But this is yeah the this is the evolution of the of the interesting movie. Well, yeah. and I was just thinking that westerns are they they often they often have like the people who are like holed up in the house, but they're not, it's not, it's not a true home invasion or anything like that. But, but you do have that kind of like what, you know, we're, you know, suddenly we're suddenly we're, we're going to, uh, you know, like Indians are going to pop in. Oh, and yeah. okay. Also not to get too off topic, but I, I, I rewatched straw dogs. Oh yeah. Another home invasion movie. And um, so there's a sequence uh, in suddenly in which there is a broken TV mm -hmm. and the broken TV is turned into a weapon by the, you know, precocious, uh, what's his name? <laughs> are you, Pig, are you? The, pre the precocious pidge. I'm talking about the, the electrocution. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Well, yeah, that's, that's, they, that's the they, conspiracy between pop Benson and Judd, the television repairman. Yes. And, and they, and they, and they, uh, they, but they like, you know, the kid is, is kind of, they're, they're talking to him a little bit about it too. And they're able using their education and smarts to talk around the invaders and yes. uh, fuck them up with by electrocuting them, and they don't know how they find a weapon basically because these guys are too dumb to know what they're talking about. <laughs> and like you know, uh, straw dogs, I uh, you know, which is 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 great. Like a lot of people look at it as obviously Dustin Hoffman is coming up with these different ingenious ways to defend his home against these people and right. kind of a um, proto and, kevin McAllister, and and, and surprise and surprise them yes yes proto kevin McAllister. And, yeah that's um, interesting but anyway but there's there's a moment much like to come in straw dogs here and suddenly with the with the tv set electric electrocution set up well um there's one there's one observation i wanted to make about suddenly uh and that is for Frank for, for Frank Sinatra's John Barron, they it really becomes that the most important thing to him is killing the president, because and this is this is emphasized by 
the 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 thing is that he's already received he, he's doing this as as was earlier observed for mercenary purposes he doesn't know who wants to kill the president or why they want to kill the president he just knows that he's getting paid and and he's already got half the money yeah he's already got half the money and and the thing is is that it's it's sideways even from the very start even before they show up to the household of Pop Benson and and uh, and his family, they've already been squealed on by a stool, a patriotic stool pigeon in Los Angeles. Yeah, and so and so it's not they're probably not going to get away with it. And 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 the observation is made: you're not going to get away with it. You've already got half the money. Why don't you just take the half, take half the money, and go? If even if you get the other half of the money, you're not going to be able to enjoy it. Nobody's ever gotten away with killing the president. Um, but Frank Sinatra holds fast and sticks to the plan because I because I think the suggestion is is that the money, getting away with it, all of that is secondary to the thrill of the kill of killing. Yeah. Yes. yes, and I think there's that's, nothing like killing. It's it's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. <laughs> That's right. Zodiac. I mean, yeah, yeah. Did, the Zodiac did, saw this movie. I, I did remind me. Well, you know, <laughs> like in reading about the movie, like what uh, didn't didn't um, Oswald see it? Like, yeah, that's the what movie? they say. They say that this is the last one. Also, uh, Libra Productions. Did you notice Libra that? Libra Productions. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, well you know, you know, there's oh, there's some mythology that Frank Sinatra, a famous friend of John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. said and this is this can't be true this can't be true although is that is that he wanted every copy of suddenly destroyed after john f kennedy was assassinated well and then uh, he was in freaking manchurian candidate too yeah, right right yeah. 62 and so this guy is in two movies about presidential assassinations with vaguely sort of like well not vaguely for manchurian candidate but with obviously paranoid themes and all that stuff and this guy is friends with John F. Kennedy. This guy, Sinatra, absolutely knew what happened in Dallas. Well, he and Kennedy had a falling out. Because, mm, he probably, because, he had probably had him killed. Because Kennedy was going to visit Palm Springs, where Sinatra lived. And, and, uh, and, and Kennedy had, had like this like helicopter landing pad built on his property and like all of this apparatus to go with it to greet the president when he came out to palm springs to visit him and he gets a call from like pete like pete no he gets peter lawford who member of the rat pack and john f kennedy brother-in-law says hey frank uh kennedy's coming to palm springs and um and he's gonna he's not gonna stay with you he's gonna stay with bing crosby who was a republican uh and sinatra tore up the helicopter landing pad and apparatus and he never spoke to Peter Lawford again. That's what they say. <laughs> and that's so he, he had, Ken- I mean, and that's with the beginnings of the Kennedy assassination. That's how yeah. it happened. He called up Kemper Boyd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Well, I mean, thank you for introducing us to Suddenly. My, hey, my uh, pleasure. Uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I was watching it. I was rewatching it and, and I started and I started getting into it and I was like, oh, this is a disaster. I was, I was like, oh, this movie's insane. 
but but it does it as it goes on it makes it makes a lot more sense and i actually think that it's really great i think that it's really great because of the performances and because of the even though it's only like 77 minutes long it, packs, it, it is a perfect length and it packs in a lot thematically and i think the script is quite clever i think the script is quite clever because yeah. you because they set it up really nicely uh you know not just with the at, the contrasting atmosphere but you've got this you've got the cat pistol which figures heavily into it as a device mm-hmm. and the television and then and and to transition into talking about the parallax view you do still have a respect for the institutions of the United States of America, all of the honor that is given to the Secret Service and all that stuff, and then the oh, cynicism, yeah. and then make way for the cynicism that mm-hmm. comes with the, the, the parallax view. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the parallax view is, um, I mean, it has a less clear goal. Or yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, um, well, it's it, 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 Parallax but... View is Parallax View is, is an art movie. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. you know, and, so... and 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 what and 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 the subjectivity that comes with that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so um, Parallax View, directed by Alan J. Pakula, in um, nineteen seventy four. Um, the next film that we're going to talk about. I discovered that this year. Um, I, I really don't know why I hadn't watched it before. Um, I really hadn't really seen any uh, Pacula before. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this fucking Pacula? name. Pacula? Pacula. Like Scott uh, Bacula, but I don't Pacula. know. Pacula. Pacula. Uh, but you know, I haven't seen Clute yet. And um, I didn't. Have you seen all the president's men? I haven't seen all the president's men. They're um, similar I, in a way. I understand this is you know there. This is a uh, sort of loosely part of a, a paranoia trilogy. Um, right. And does that include Clute? Yeah, that includes Clute, and I think okay. Clute is um, even before this, right? Yes, I think that's the with, with Hanoi Jane Fonda, if I recall correctly. That's right, and Donald. He works with Hanoi Jane and Hanoi Beatty. <laughs> And, um, so, okay, all right, interestingly, Parallax View comes out in 1974, right? And, obviously, when the Parallax View comes out, this is post, um, a number of assassinations. You know, this is a completely different country than, uh, we see in Suddenly. And, um... Uh, one thing that that I want to start off by saying is there were a number of paranoid uh, films during this time and that dealt with conspiracies around assassinations and attempts and um, that, you know, addressed real life events as well as that were, you know, spinoffs and uh, you know, uh, new myths and everything. But in 1973, like a year before the Parallax View, there was this movie, Executive Action, that came out that was written by Dalton uh, Trumbo um, with with Burt Lancaster and, and Robert Ryan. And it is explicitly um, about uh, 
Like it's 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 pure you know fan fiction about it's the first movie about the JFK uh, assassination. Yeah, and it's it's uh 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 you know it figures in um all kinds of political motivations and it ends with a you know list of <laughs> eighteen people who were killed you know around the war in Porter and around the assassination. Um, who apparently had seen things, and then we go into the parallax view, which is explicitly sort of about um, the people who possibly may have seen something who are getting killed off, right? So it's almost like it's expanding upon that list that you see at the end of of executive action. But this is a very, you know, there's a lot of paranoid cinema in this era, and... Um, the parallax view comes in there, and uh, we're not in Dallas for this assassination that the movie opens with. We're we're in the Pacific Northwest. We're in Seattle. We're yeah, in yeah. Uh, we're in the Space Needle, and um, this movie from the jump is so striking and so effortless and so cool and sleek. Like I just uh, I I was I was shocked that that I hadn't. Um, given it a chance before um uh it it feels like i feel like i understand uh i don't know it, i just thought it was fantastic and i knew you guys had to see it and, and it kind of like it gave me new visual information that filled in aspects of elroy you know um i felt like the landscape in uh the parallax view is is similar um, and, the, and the feel that it has is similar to, to the way that the paranoia and violence feel in the Underworld USA trilogy, or the way I like to think of them anyway. Um, but the Parallax View is ostensibly from a, you know, hippie, hipster's point of view. I mean, it's not really from his point of view, but he's the main character. He's a hippie, hipster uh, journalist, and played by Warren Beatty. And... Um, uh, he is, you know, um, cynical, and while it appears that he has uh, entertained conspiracies in the past, at the beginning of the film, he's not all the way, or where we find him after this assassination that he was around, he does not really believe in any foul play, he has bought you know, the line that uh, has been, you know, given out. And, you know, he's kind of doing his own thing um, as as a journalist. Um, I don't know. This, I, I think this is an incredible film. And I, I was excited by, like, when I showed it to you, you're like, this is so totally original. Um, what were your initial feelings uh, for it and... and Blower, like, you'd seen it before uh, Brendan and I, um, you know, and you're like, the, oh, yeah, of course, this shit's mm -hmm. a classic, you know. Um, but how do you think, like, w w I saw Suddenly Later, like, after you saw Suddenly and then this, what made you want to, like, join these two, put these two on a double bill together? I mean, there's the obvious reasons, the, you know, assassination plot elements, but, you know, what... What makes this, you know, you say it's a, a cynical film, um, but yeah, what, what are your feelings about it? How does it, how does it work in here? Well, so, so first of all, I, I do say that it's cynical, but 
I, I feel like that's just kind of um that's an easy thing to say because because this is a period of time in American history when you know we're allegedly as a nation becoming more cynical because bad shit has happened to us now mm-hmm. you know the the victory the the ostensible victory uh, of World War II and the prosperity that we experienced immediately following that uh, has kind of faded into the background because because there is now a, a, a broad mistrust of political leadership after you know you know after Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon we we know that it's that to, to even mention it it's it's fucking it's tired like I, I and so so the cynicism it might be just a projection but I mean you're not you're not going to look at the parallax view and say there's op, there's an optimism afoot afoot here either and in fact there, there's even there's even some pre there there it, it, it predates some of the 90 like some of that the, the 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 cynicism of the 1990s of kind of a gen x perspective on corporate america and the country that we're becoming because at play in this in this movie is this parallax corporation which i think is a really brilliant um idea uh, and that's what, and i say that it's original because because uh, of the story is so good uh, about this potential parallax corporation that's in charge with essentially recruiting people uh, to become assassins or to become patsies for assassinations. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and this idea that there would just be this apparatus dedicated to it because we as a nation have become so, we, we become so immersed in political violence, in assassination, that there's, that there's an entire company an entire corporation that's behind it and they've even got their own recruitment video. Now, I'm not I haven't answered your question yet, Sam. So, the, the tw- so so the 20 years separating us 1954 and 1974. Well, we've already said that suddenly is not a rosy picture of America in the 1950s. It has a dark vision of America and of the world in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So there is a kind of uh, undermining of Americana or just exactly, America. exactly. And and, right. and and by 1974, that that idea of Americana um, in Hollywood. Now, granted, there's been a lot of discussion, and hell, Richard Nixon even named it the Silent Majority. That probably a lot of the United States was still was still very optimistic and normal and sure they probably had their share of problems but it was not the point of view uh, of of say the warren Beatty character in this movie that the hippie character mm-hmm. um but the contrast that we do see in this movie is not between the point of view the perspective that it has on the united states but in the but in the but the leaps and bounds that have taken place in the style of movies that the, the 20 years that separate this movie and Quentin Tarantino in 1994, 20 years later are not that it, that is a, those are, that's practically the, the time that could have elapsed between this movie and what we see in the nineties is like a matter of days compared to the jump that's made stylistically between a movie like Suddenly and The Parallax View. Because the, 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 the Parallax View has that quality that the Kubrick has where it feels like it's almost like a series like of big scenes of these yeah, big that's true. visual set pieces, you know? It, 
there's big visual set pieces. The movie is kind of broken up into parts. And there's an amazing part in the middle where we get this incredible montage that's like the Parallax Corporation's um, like indoctrination video that yeah. could have been something that was created by like an avant-garde filmmaker like a Bruce Connor or something like that. But the movie is so skilled at creating this atmosphere of uneasiness. And they do it by these long, like these incredibly long shots like like triple long shots you know with like i i don't think they're using it's not like telephoto lenses but they're just like shooting uh, dialogue that's happening at a great distance and then there's also these scenes that are incredibly claustrophobic where the camera kind of stays still on one person while there's other people outside of the shot talking and so it creates this amazing atmosphere of unease by at once making it feel like the characters in the movie are being watched and that also there's something incredibly claustro that that they're experiencing some kind of claustrophobia. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's 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 from great distances, and and when you're close to people, you 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 zoom in, and and it it it, it creates that that feel. So even when you're when you're way out there and seeing this, it feels uh, it feels like the walls are closing in, and that's what there's this, you know, I mean uh, the just the visual sophistication of Gordon Willis, yes. the cinematographer, and of Pacula. I was so just kind of like struck by, yeah, just the, the visual sophistication of the film, of the storytelling. You watch this and you think like, wow, like, like you say, like this is so much of, of how, how good it is has, has been um, kind of lost. Um, there's a control behind it that just feels... Uh, effortless and and um uh you know the the opening shot is of a totem pole yes and then the camera's very still and then it quietly shifts and reveals uh in the background the looming um uh the space needle you know space needle and which is this completely absurd, you know, and, and Pacula said he chose it because it was this, you know, absurd thing. Like, it, there is no real use for it. It's, it's this egregious display of, like, power. And that, like, it was, you know, and, and you got to think that the, the people behind this movie, um, you know, unlike the chamber piece that is suddenly which takes place inside of a a, a a single home this movie has several different locations but we're at like the space needle and the convention center and we're in you know this is really concerned with infrastructure and this is this is concerned with the change in infrastructure that's happened since you know suddenly was released um and uh, that is that there's been this explosion in skyscrapers all across the world. You know, it's interesting, too, that that at the beginning of this film, so we go from the symbol of the totem pole, right? Yes. Representing the past to this new symbol, which is the Space Needle. And um, that's very interesting. And the other thing that I can't help but thinking, it, it thought was, was that, okay, um, well, JFK happened in Dallas, Dealey Plaza, and so there is, I feel like a self-conscious suggestion that by showing 
the Space Needle in Seattle, that it's like this idea that, okay, maybe this good old boy network or these nefarious political operatives could have orchestrated this thing in, in the South, right? But this kind of power apparatus, this has no real length or arm or power uh, or influence in the, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. You know, and then in 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 the the green Pacific Northwest, you know, and like in the hippieish Pacific Northwest, and it's like no, actually, this whatever this thing is, this machine is, it doesn't matter what you know political party is assigned to it anymore. Political parties do not matter anymore. We're just it's one thing, and um, you know we're living in the end times. And when it cuts to the moments of the, you know. Uh, the guys uh, <coughs> handing down the order and explaining this, there will be no questions. You know, it's like this is this is power now, and um, this is how things are dealt with. And you know, automatically, um, the character who we follow, played by Warren Beatty, is in a situation that is best described as Kafkaesque. You know, in 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 contrast to to the world around him, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, all, all of the bureaucracies are perverted and, and warped and, um, you know, there's nothing sacred anymore. Like, and suddenly there's, there's still a sacred morality and suddenly, and there's still a consciousness and, 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 and suddenly this is, this is cynical and this is, this is doomed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and 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 it's just this this it visually it feels like it feels like a a uh, a horror film of the future, you know. Not really like it, it, you know, there are these other conspiracy films from that era and I've seen some of them and I don't know, there's something that 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 really it, it reminds me of uh it's the 2001 of, yeah. <laughs> of like conspiracy well, films. I'm trying to I've been trying to collect my thoughts on this movie. And it's hard because I feel like it kind of says everything that could be said on it about itself. But, like, I feel like it's... Well, one, it feels that futuristic feeling is basically because it's about the internet. And the way the internet is a replication machine for patsies or assets of the deep state. Like, that parallax corporation montage that we see is i mean they couldn't have foreseen it i mean maybe they could have but they didn't foresee it as that is a, the that montage is essentially the way the internet and the flow of information nowadays functions and how it bombards us with stimuli and images that are contradictory that juxtapose with each other that sort of create this never-ending sense of dissonance within the human mind. And you have to wonder, you know, if that montage works on parallax assassins or patsies, then what does that do to us now in 2021? And going on, you know, and just sort of looking back, I was I was trying to... One, of my, one thing that I was thinking about was, like, well, the cynicism of Parallax View versus the, I don't know, the idealism or gee whiz sentiments of uh, suddenly, 
and one idea that I was trying on for size and see if uh, this gets you off at all <laughs> is uh, the idea that parallax view is actually idealistic because it depicts an America where there is a deep, there is deep rot, there is a deep malignancy, you know, personified by parallax, but at least you have to watch a video in order to become entranced by that system. Whereas in suddenly there's this sense that the rot is just there in the air like a miasma and that it can fade at any moment. But with Parallax View, at least they have to force you to sit down and watch it first. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 uh it's it's different things at, at at play, right? I mean, I I I feel like um thing I kept thinking of was uh we just recorded an episode about widespread panic. Hopefully, uh-huh. yes, listen to it by at this point. But um the line in widespread panic um that I may butcher right now, but it's uh be wary of what's pursuing. Take note of what you're pursuing. What is it? It's take note of what you are seeking because it is also seeking you. Yeah, and I and I I feel like that applies to the parallax view. <laughs> well, that's a cow. That that I I realize that that in um, there's like kind of a Calvinist strain in James Elroy, mm-hmm. and 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 that statement, take note of what you're seeking because it is also seeking you, is kind of like saying that what you what you are what you are seeking you think you are you are you think you are looking for it of your own free will but the truth is is that it you are chosen to find it yes and 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 so in this movie right warren Beatty is seeking something that is actually has already selected him in advance yes for its purposes Yes. And, and and that is a really really that's a trippy sentiment. And no, it's it's a it's a it's a frightening and chilling realization that from the start possibly, right? That 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 Warren Beatty he thinks, "Well, I I'm on to something here and I'm going to keep pursuing it only to find in the end that it was pursuing him that that it, he had been selected. He was not the wiser yeah, no, 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 and 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 we're with him up until that moment yes. where he really didn't, where he figures out what <laughs> yes. that he's been that he's been had. But uh, uh, until we get there, we follow this character on a journey, right? Where so first of all, we see this assassination take place, which is striking and hilarious. Um, uh, you know, before the politician g- g- gets shot, he what is he says something about like being he's like some people have called me too independent. Like, yes, blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, and uh, you know, he ends up. You know, he's working with a with a newspaper, um, uh, somewhere in California, and he's visited by somebody who is there on that day and she's uh, a reporter and he doesn't believe her story at first 
Um, this character is uh, played by Paula Prentice. Uh, great actress. Uh, she is, she's great. And, you know, she's just in there in a kind of thankless role for, like, just a second. She's just amazing. But basically, you know, she's a drug addict, and he's kind of suspicious. Like, what is she... Uh, you know, he's, he's not quite sure that... He, he thinks she might just be totally paranoid. And then uh, she dies, and he starts to believe that there's something to what what uh, she said, and he goes back up north um, to some podunk town outside of Seattle to talk to um, this guy who was also there at the uh, assassination, um, who knows something, you know, and who knows uh, this, who has this uh, friend in common who who dies on him. Anyway. Um, he ends up going up there, and uh, it's such a fascinating movie because at times it feels, has this kind of, like, the characters are speaking so low that, that uh, and you can't tell, if it almost feels improvised, and you can't quite tell what to listen to, the, the way that, um, um, you know, the, the sound is designed, it feels very particular, I mean, everything in this movie is 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 hyper stylized, and um, I, I don't know, I don't know, but uh, but yeah, I uh, uh, it it, it kind of just it, it proposes that like there's there's no way of of getting around this thing. This thing is too big. You can't be smarter than it. You can't realize like you can't even if you realize that this. Uh, network and this conspiracy is even if you can see it for for what it is and you know exactly what happened it doesn't matter like it will eat you alive like your well, pursuit of it will will <coughs> there's no angle that you can get on it well and that's why i think that's why i say that it's basically a allegory for the internet is because at this point yeah. the internet is so all consuming it's basically what, you know, the David Foster Wallace line of, this is water. It's basically the water that we inhabit. Um, liquid paranoia, I guess. Um, and it's not, you know, I don't think you log in and then there's like, this. there's this whole mythology of like, oh, well, there are FBI handlers and like all this stuff that are like consciously like moving, like, chess pieces and, like, pulling strings and all that stuff. And I don't... I mean, maybe in some cases that's the case, but I don't really think it's that common. What it is is that it is an apparatus of influence and control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I mean, it makes sense that it started out as basically a military project. Um, and that, like, once you have this system... Of, of influence and control set up, you can just kind of put your hand off the switch and just let it, you know, run its course and you will get the, you know, you being the uh, shadowy cabal conspirator who's pulling the strings. You don't have to pull the strings anymore once you have an entire system that does all of that for you. Exactly. It's it, once once the ball is already rolling. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. He does all the work for him. You know, it's there's there's there's. Uh, I mean, it's a uh, uh, the movie's a, a 
demythologizing force. And what I was trying to get at was just that the strangeness stylistically of like having these moments that that are I don't know uh, feel like you they're they're trying to I don't know it's lulling you in by its 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 kind of naturalistic dialogue and you're kind of hearing what the characters hear and it's it's uh, it's very strong and then you have these like that barroom brawl that happens <laughs> yeah which is like this. It's like a Hollywood trope where it's like this big, you know, and guys are getting thrown through walls and yeah. like, like it's all within this very serious film and it's intre It's just an interesting moment and uh, it's well, a great scene. Well, it's it's, sort of a, it's like a great scene. What starts out as it like, it seems like, oh, this is kind of going to be like a political docudrama kind of thing, although fictional, but it political docudrama. Um, in the sense that executive action is, then it basically morphs into, like, a cyber-fantastical, like, sort of phantasmagoria of, like, American politics. Mm -hmm. Well, a shift occurs in the film, because... Yeah. Because he does go, the, the movie changes. Uh, there's a, you know, the turning point in many ways is when he does watch that, the indoctrination sequence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Although, so, 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 so I, I find the, I find it quite an, quite an interesting character study because the, the second time that I watched it, I was like watching it with an eye for, well, is, is Warren Beatty is the Warren Beatty character actually, you know, he the, the, he ostensibly gets involved with the Parallax Corporation because he's a, you know, he's a journalist in search of the truth, but what are the qualities that he's exhibiting throughout the movie? You know, that, and, 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 and it's, right. it's try, you're trying to kind of see, well, well, what kind of person really is this? And do they actually make a good candidate for the Parallax Corporation, right? And so, so the, the 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 barroom brawl scene is a perfect exactly. example, right? Cause, because because you're you're watching him commit violence, and it's a strange moment because they're these two young big guys, and Warren Beatty appears at least in this movie to be a sub substantive six two, and um, and the older sheriff who's watching them who seems to be getting off on the violence <laughs> in the moment, um, like is really relishing it, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, it starts to feel like, yeah, he's, he's watching this guy. He's they're They're testing him. Well, and, and the testing whole, his abilities, the whole movie, by the way, the, the, by the way, I just say that the movie's very original because there's not many movies that accomplish such a unity of theme and style. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like there, there's no that rarely does a movie reflect its its main th the thrust of its main thematic points in the in a style in this consistent of a way. And sometimes you feel like you're just over overhearing, or uh, you know, you're kind of like you're observing from a distance at, at th what's happening in the movie. But but that that's an aside because that scene, that brawl scene. That, that you're talking about you have to question it as well what does this really even have anything to do with the story like like why is this scene even in the movie 
you know, you might just say, well, it's, it's a, it's, it's playful. It's great fun. You know, this is something that they wanted to, you know, that the filmmakers wanted to include because they just wanted to, but I do think that it somehow gets at, this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with here is like a man who, who's capable of violence, who uh, is slightly, you know, is, is on the, it's an outcast. Well, yeah, what, what it tells us is that this is not his first fight. You know, no, he, that, he knows his way around a barroom brawl. That's a good point. Barn. You know, uh, he's, he's a little bit of an outsider. Um, we know in the first, which is the, the strange kind of like thing that he's investigating in the beginning, involving yeah. some kind of police corruption. And he, he, he's showing that he, he's demonstrating what? An issue with an authority. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, his boss, who is his angel, is disturbed by the enjoyment that he's that that Beatty is getting out of kind of playing with and toying with these authority figures, however corrupt they may be. Um, th there is some aspect to the way that he's dealing with them that disturbs his boss. I feel like. sure, and I mean, I think there's a, there's a general. Um, there, there is a general antisocial nature right. to so the Beatty character because, because he's so easily able to say, well, hey, you know, after, after he's thought to be dead on that boat with Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, <laughs> that, um, that he's so willing to just say, hey, I'll stay dead. That he, yeah. doesn't have, that he doesn't have anything tying him to his life as himself no as he's 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 and, and that's after a scene where there's a random explosion on a boat right yeah a yeah. traumatizing moment and he is he is excited by this you know like he, he's i feel like he's excited he's filled with a sense of purpose now yes. you know much like the parallax corporation would seek in their you know, um, their subjects, yeah, their subjects. They they want somebody who is who 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 has a sort of sense of grandeur to themselves and a certain kind of narcissism, you know. And it's and it's like you're watching um, these these aspects of his character being, and you don't quite know, like at what point when he is becoming the guy who they're recruiting, right? Yes, and it's pretending to be him. At at what point is he just playing on, and at what point is that just him? That, you know, that's, is there ever a difference? Is it that significant? You know, when he burns, is he actually acting? That's such a moments? great question. That, you know I, what I mean? I, I, that's and, exactly and, and, and what I thought. And he's a dry drunk. And he's a dry drunk. He, yes, he's known. He's known for being a dry drunk before he's ever recruited by the Parallax Corporation. Like he's he's he orders milk at the bar. <laughs> he orders milk at the fucking bar. <laughs> Which I was bar. amazed that they were able to pour. Like I, I was thinking about that. I was like. If I go to a bar right now, would I even be able to get milk? I don't think so. But yeah. Um, but but okay. So Sam, so that's a great point, and something that I was thinking about when watching it the second time around is when he's visited by the Parallax recruiter for the first time. And by the way, the guy that's the Parallax recruiter is excellent. Like that. That's a great performance by that guy. I don't know who that guy is, but oh he's, yeah, he's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's and, great. It, it, and it's just. He's, 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 a, it's a perfect villain, you know, he's yeah. and he completely disappears in that. Yeah. And, and so, and so he's acting like an, like a prick, you know, like he's acting kind of like an antisocial dumb, dumbass a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I was beginning to think, wait a minute. So is he, 
is he is he acting for this guy's benefit? I mean, maybe I, I think maybe a little bit like he was like, I have to melt into this. I'm pretending to be an antisocial misfit person in order to, you know, kind of a, a Lee Harvey Oswald type in order to impress upon this recruiter that, hey, you know, I'm I'm the, I'm your man because 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 he's trying to get recruited into the Parallax Corporation. And by the way, the Parallax Corporation's shown they have this incredibly long questionnaire that's really cool and clever. Mm -hmm. That that's you know that's an invention of the writers of this movie. Well, it's it's based on a real test, um, apparently, because they, they had like they had a they had a consultant uh, for it. So it was based on something called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is a standardized psychometric test of adult uh, psychopathology. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's what the 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 actual test is based on so it's it's based on something real and uh, if you're ref referring then to the the indoctrination video that he sees um i mean what were what were your both of your first feelings on on watching that and jacob what were your first feelings watching that because that moment one thing that i i was thinking of, okay what what other what other moments are like that that scene you know and of course, think you think of Clockwork Orange, right? But in Clockwork Orange, you know, he you're cutting back and forth between Malcolm McDowell and what he's being forced to watch, yeah. right? So you are getting these uh, you're getting these emotional responses from him. Yeah, it's very with, important to the scene. With in Clockwork this, Orange, you're, just in it. you're basically being told how to respond to what you see by the reaction shots of Malcolm McDowell. But in Parallax View, you are basically in the eyes of Warren Beatty or whoever is the asset patsy for Parallax View. And I found it very compelling. I found it a little bit reminiscent of Adam Curtis in a lot of ways. Yeah. I thought it was very... I mean, I would probably guess watch that on its own as like some sort of art thing. Just want to like put that up on like a projector. I thought I'm. It, I'd be curious. Yeah. I'd be curious to know if that was the work of just the main production team, or like whether they had like hired some like weird avant garde like film person it's, to make that G Gordon them. Willis is just is just brilliant and like like in the in the in the in the montage you see you're seeing like uh the, so uh on um one of the features on the uh parallax view thing that I watched uh is this guy who is an assistant to the director and this fucking guy got to just hang out with Pacula and and just watch him you know, um, and he, he's the one who helped contribute the stuff about, uh, like, uh, the, the test. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It, 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 uh, it like, it's so, it's so hyper stylized, but he was, but he talks about that moment in that scene and he, and I think they were drawn, like he, he found some footage, um, in you know the New York Daily News, he found some photographs, and someone else found this, 
and I think it was a real collaborative effort. And then one of the one of the images you see repeated, I just have to say this in the, in the montage is from the movie Electric Glide in Blue, um, oh, really? which was you know shot by Conrad Hall and possibly partially directed by him. And um, so you see that image of Robert Blake and the two other guys from from uh, Electric Light and Blue a handful of times. So what what I'm just suggesting that is that we have a uh, this this collaboration between cinematographers, you know, um, who are who are influencing one another, you know. But the Adam Curtis thing, it's almost it has that kind of haunted visual language that yeah. like Terminator Two has. Where yeah, you almost could want to put it back on the ground because it has some kind of something radiates off of it that you just want to kind of like uh, sit in, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Well, I, I if so, I, I could see that somebody who who is already disaffected watching that sequence uh, would become very upset, would become very angry, or it would you, it would be something that would really justify their anger. Because you're seeing all of these, like, um, you know, kind of these, these, like, things that we would take for granted or, or touchstones of American life that are then being contrasted with more subversive images. And I think the suggestion is becoming that, hey, you know, these things, these things are, it may, it's like, it's like saying, okay, these, these are, these are things that are wholesome and good. And then these things are, are just as commonplace. And so, you know, you, you might have this feeling of security or um, familiarity that's then being broken into by this like pornographic images and things like that. You yeah. Know, but, but, yeah. Keep going. But also, I mean, I, I, without a doubt, I mean, it's, I think it's just confusing. And I think that if there was a mind that wasn't governed properly, that confusion leads to anger. I think that it's telling you it's it's emboldening and validating all of your suspicions, right? Yes, yes. The imagery is is directed in particular at the you know um, antisocial male and the disposable male, and it's going, hey, we see you. It's a a point of recognition. It's going, yeah. hey, or we're this is this is we see that nobody else sees you, but we see you. Yeah, you're the real hero. Yeah. You're the real hero in this landscape. That's, that's and, that was my and, reaction. And 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 you know we have okay here's pornography and love and look how media and stuff is look it's look how it's it's making this it's 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 turning it into pornography and then all these haunted figures of mom and dad they're drawn out destroyed by work or each other or disease or drugs or you know and then there's baroque and bizarre sexuality contrasted <laughs> with yeah violence and cartoons and hitler and you know and, <laughs> it was basically just an elroy novel yeah yeah and and, and but it's it, i mean it's it's great it's a great um it's a great, it's a great sequence it's a great sequence and um and it's a very impactful moment and one of the things that i i read gordon willis say was that was it was really about keeping up these the boundary with the audience that they that keeping up the boundaries with the audience was important and god it is strange for something so sorry i just think for, especially for that moment you you are really brought into it you know it's yeah. like the end of 2001 and, but uh, the, the sequence immediately following it is if i'm not mistaken is when he goes on the airplane right 
Um, I believe so. And, yeah, and, and that's that's just as good because like there's no dialogue for how many minutes? Twenty minutes? Yeah. And it, yeah. but it's very suspenseful, and 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 your understanding of what's happening is is it, like almost second by second the same as Warren Beatty's and 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 it reveals that you get on <laughs> and and something that was very surprising to me is that you could back then you could get on an airplane and pay for the trip from your that that they wouldn't even ask you for the money until you the plane was in the oh, air oh yeah he's, he's paying on the plane <laughs> yeah he's like I, I guess i'll pay that yeah yeah that was but yeah i mean that's just another brilliant sequence of the movie um where he's on a he gets on an airplane because he'd been following some guy from the offices of the Parallax Corporation to the airport. And he realizes that, that when he gets on the plane, he realizes that there's a presidential candidate on the plane with him. Yeah. And he realizes, oh, this is, this is an assassination. There's a bomb on this plane. And he has to figure out how he's going to communicate to the staff, you know, the, the, the pilot and, and the, peop- the staff of the airline that, Hey, this plane needs to be turned around and landed before this bomb explodes. It's pretty, it's a pretty amazing scene. Oh yeah. It's, it's a remarkable scene. And he's going to the, like it's, if you think about all these sequences though, I mean, like, like it is interesting that, okay, we have the big barroom brawl, right. And then we have the scene at the, The my favorite scene at the dam. Yes. Which, uh, which is incredible and terrifying. And then, yeah. you, you know, as the Gordon Willis's camera is following them down the river, <laughs> really feel like, that are they going to make it? Um, but that that's a terrifying scene when you hear the alarm go off. Yeah, that it, alarm it, sound was in, was is very, very uh, uh, abrupt and, and startling. It, it, it reminds me of the, you know, the, what's it, the Christopher Nolan Inception. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that that's where they got it from. But, uh... Uh, like okay, then we have that that very thrilling fight. Um, then we have an incredible car chase. Yes, you know that. You know it's really you know um, objectively looking at it, you're you're really like well, Pacula sure sure knows what the fuck he's doing. Like yeah, it's so well staged. Um, it never feels like it's biting off more than it can chew, despite how like, I mean the car chase is is. These are just roll-looking, like, propulsive, big action scenes. You know, yeah. they're not, like, minimalist uh, moments. They're, they're no. really, like, down and dirty. And then and uh, it's, it's kind of amazing how it just never loses its cool at any point. And the and assassination that, scene at the beginning is on the, is on the Space Needle itself. And on the, the guy needle. even it, falls off. <laughs> It's, it's, um, there's this, uh, uh, in House of Bamboo, in Sam Fuller's House of Bamboo, there's a fight on the spinning fin in Tokyo. Uh, um, uh, and anyway, the footage is used, but it, it, it's, it's, it's like that. But that's, it's, it's an incredible use of Blower. Like, what did you think of the, like, obviously infrastructure is important in the parallax view. What did you think of, like, its use of, Obviously, I said what I said about skyscrapers, but what would you say about its use of buildings and, uh, you know? Well, yeah, because the most important consideration you need to make, whether you're an artist, filmmaker, filmmaker, artist, whatever, um, 
or an assassin is where <laughs> you're going to stage the killing because where you assassinate the given politician is one of the utmost importance. And I was thinking earlier, you know, when you were talking earlier about infrastructure, like where have our four presidents who have been assassinated been assassinated? One was at a theater. The other, another was at a train station. Then the third, McKinley, he was at an, like, exposition center. And then, obviously, John F. Kennedy was at Dealey Plaza. RFK. Um, um, RFK and, was in a hotel. Yeah, that's right. And in, so... In Hollywood. So the crucial... Well, I, I was just listing off the presidents. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah fair enough. Um, and, and, yeah, of course, there's a bunch more where they're, like, mainly in transit from one place to another, which I think maybe that would be something that someone would contemplate. But, um, so the location is supremely important, and you have the sense of place is paramount in this movie. Like, you have the guy, like, roll off the Space Needle, and the Space Needle is, I don't know, how, was that a new thing? When was the Space Needle built? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure when the Space Needle was built. Was built. <clears throat> yeah, it was built for a World's Fair, like in, I think it was like in the um, 1962 World's Fair. Okay, so it was relatively new. Yeah, yeah. So like this weird, like new, like novelty basically building. Yes, yeah. Um, tourist trap in a lot of ways. Um, and then the assassination at the end is very interesting because it's set not during an event, but during a rehearsal for an event. And, like, they're trying to get, like, the musical cues right and get, like, this sort of... They have, like, the crowd of people with, like, the different cards to show the faces of the president and then the faces of the past presidents and then the face of the presidential candidate, Senator Hammond or whatever. Um... And I don't know where I'm going with this. But, <laughs> no, 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 just just talking about the, yeah. the various places and use well, of places. I mean, it's it's yes, it's very interesting. Like, it's I, just I, amazing. I, I feel like it's just it's like okay, we start out with the totem pole, we go to the Space Needle, we're going, we end at the uh, in this convention center. You know, I feel like the. The, the, the thing that's interesting about the parallax view to me is that there isn't any sort of obvious, uh, there's, 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 there's no kind of obvious political scapegoats at, at, at play. And yeah. basically, like, the forces behind the parallax corporation are far more almost occult or, you know, kind of yeah. strange and esoteric. There's a, a weird... Uh, you know, a broke kind of well, quality the fact to, that, the, to Parallax Corporation. The fact that there is no, if I recall correctly, no one states we gotta kill these politicians be, so we can go to war or because they're gonna raise taxes on something. The fact that, like, for all intents and purposes, they're basically conducting these assassinations for their own sake, you know, within the context of the movie they're just doing them for the sake of killing and 
you know, one of one of the things I like to repeat is that a synonym for covert operation is a cult ritual. And if you're just sort of Yes. If you're doing something that gradually becomes something that you do because it's something that you do in that sort of tautological kind of way, that does become a ritual. Right. So it's like the, the people who are being killed in the wake of these assassinations or they're being, it's like they're being, in, in the way that infrastructure is used in the movie, it's as if they're being sacrificed for yeah, the sake of these. Ritual sacrifice. Ritual sacrifice as if, as if the, the land and as if, the buildings themselves demand the yeah. blood of these people well, to 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 be, you know, erected. Around this time, around the sort of rise of the paranoid thriller in the early 1970s, is you had the rise of folk horror in um, Britain. And that was movies like The Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw and some other ones. And that a lot of that was connected to a sense of place and like a lot of ritual sacrifice. Yeah, but it's like just we totem and symbol. And we don't have, we don't have that, really. We don't have that horror tradition in the United States. But what we do have is the paranoid thriller, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that sort of gets to. There's this whole crazy, and maybe we'll get to it more when we eventually do our. Uh, finally set the record straight on why the JFK assassination is cool to study and not what the fucking dorkbag left makes it all fucking gay and nerdy when we do our bad back jack spectacular um get dorkbag left yeah exactly <laughs> we'll get into it deeper but there is this whole thing about like the killing of a king and you know, Marilyn Manson did his song that was like King Kill 33 and that's based on an essay by James Shelby Downard and Michael Hoffman talking about how the assassination of John F. Kennedy was essentially like a Masonic ritual mm-hmm. and had no purpose beyond the assassination itself. Well, it's 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 interesting, I mean, you because you, you mentioned that song because on that same album as the disposable disposable teens song i think and like and i was so around all those school shootings and stuff but like i i uh uh it's it's it is what i i feel like is is in the parallax view like it, there's something about it that like i i think fincher's obviously gotten a lot of stuff from this movie i think he was very inspired but there's a look to it that it's interesting you mentioned manson that I feel like the look and feel of, of the parallax view was emulated maybe a lot in the 90s and in some stuff. Uh, but, like, um, um, th- these are, like, like it's interesting that, so you, you have Beatty who ostensibly has avoided Vietnam, right? Like, he yeah. is a character and he's a guy who has not been sacrificed by his country and if if that is what in fact is going on or he's 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 not you know but but this in in the beware of what you're seeking motto obviously despite all of despite his position he still finds himself being sacrificed you know by a power that is far you know uh more important than he is um 
but I, I just think that the the um the 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 feeling of the darkness of the Parallax Corporation, the suggestion that there is something really that both of these films have in common is just that at, at the heart of this country and that in response to wars, that um, that in response to acts of violence, that we carry these things with us, that that there are casualties of these things and that they bleed into every part of life and it infects everything and you can be, you know, threatened by any one of any number of these elements, you know, um, and I don't know, uh, <laughs> um, you have a reason to be, they give you reasons to be paranoid, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I think the Parallax View is a, a absolutely fantastic, fantastic movie written by the same guy who wrote the first Alien. Oh, yeah. That's simple. What? Lorenzo, Lorenzo Semple Jr.? No, no, uh, David Giller. Okay. Yeah. My name's the other guy's Lorenzo Semple Jr. Who who wrote the first Alien? No, uh, the guy who wrote uh, uh, Parallax View. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I don't know who Lorenzo Semple. I was just, I was just thinking he's a <laughs> he keeps oh, it yeah. simple. Well, he um, he, he, he uh, apparently worked on uh, Three Days of the Condor, which I had seen, which, you know, is part of this, another American political Sidney Pollock thriller, um, oh, which strangely yes. enough, you know, that, that the actor you played out who plays the, the you know, the basically the, the parallax agent who's um, playing uh, Beatty, uh, like that actor was only in four movies. And, you know, one of the other ones was Three Days on the Condor. So. I'll be damned. Well, so, so this movie is the, the I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of functions as um, like an audition tape for, for Pacula because he goes on to do All the President's Men, which is very, which there, there's some similarities because it's about journalists who are like kind of uncovering uh, a, you know, some kind of like cover up or conspiracy, only it's real. But the thing is, is that that only only uh, Pacula could do that movie because basically the whole the entire movie kind of gets its gets its um, any interest that it has kind of just from the the atmosphere that it creates, because the, the movie's like it's nothing happens in all the president's men at all. Like nothing happens in it. You know, it's just basically these guys who are who are having these conversations with people uncovering this thing that's impossible to understand. Like it's not that, you know, the conspiracy that they're uncovering and like these slush funds and things that Richard Nixon was, you know, funding or whatever, like the movie is not is not an easy movie to understand. But, you know, it he does bring to bring to bear on that movie the style of the parallax view. That's that's really, really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, because it, it does feel there is this other movie um i don't know if you've seen it by uh francisco rossi the italian director called um the uh i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly but the matei affair um and it's basically just about um the you know life and death of uh this italian businessman um who, like, I guess after World War II, uh, managed to avoid, uh, 
you know, the sale of Italian oil and hydrocarbon, um, the Italian oil and hydrocarbon industry to U.S. companies. And um, it's about, it's, I guess it's all about him, but it, it had a huge influence on, um, I think, uh, the parallax view, apparently, according to director Alex Cox. Um, oh, yeah. And a number of these other movies. But uh, it, it, just in your description of it, um, like, like he, I think he says, Alice Cox says something deliberate about uh, the atmosphere of the Matai affair being so remarkable and, and powerful that, like, you'd think it would be this very boring film, but it's not. And that make, again, makes me think of, like, Fincher as obviously a student of this guy. Is, and, and I think he's ta- mentioned all the president's men. But he just, has. But but because he's just this this uh, uh, excellent excellent storyteller um, who is interest you know and if you look you look yeah. at some of his movies like this the social network and stuff it, you do feel like he's trying to I don't know make make movies about these moments that could otherwise be deemed very boring. Yeah, no. Undramatic and finding the drama in them, or maybe not finding the drama in them, but showing them anyway. I don't know. No, I I think I described Zodiac as like if they made a movie about going to work and, and, uh, and that's kind of what all the president's men is too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So Michael Mann has that a little bit too. He does. He does. He does. Yeah. But, um, um yeah but uh yeah parallax view if you haven't seen it it's it's really one to check out you won't be disappointed um absolutely uh, great movie and suddenly is great too they, they make a great i mean you can really watch them both in one night because suddenly is like 45 minutes long <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no you, you can watch you could watch suddenly and the parallax view all in the same amount of time it would have taken you to watch heat it probably in in all all the same amount of time to, to listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah definitely. Podcast is longer than <laughs> both films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, watch suddenly on YouTube uh, in the original black and white because on mm-hmm. um, on Amazon they've got this weird colorized version. Oh man, where the they take cut. they take Sinatra's br- uh, blue eyes and make them brown. Yeah. Wow, it's full of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck that. Well, well yeah, that check, check. Succumb to the vision of the parallax. Yeah, yeah. Become a killer. Why not? You know. But yeah, watch watch the parallax view. Let it let it. Uh, yeah, succumb to the vision of the parallax view and realize that that you're way in over your head. All right, all right, fellows. I think we should call it a night. Sure. All right.